0: Amen, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats, and I'm going to invite you to get your Bibles out and start making your way to Genesis 18. Uh, We'll actually be in 18 and 19 this morning, so we have quite a bit of real estate uh, that we're going to cover. And fair warning, if you haven't read the text in advance, a lot of what we're going to cover is just downright disturbing, uh, perverse, and weird. Um, And so you've been warned uh, in terms of where we're going. So as you're making your way To Genesis 18, let me start by asking this question, kind of appropriate, with that kind of lead-in. You ever been in a courtroom? All right, come on, true confessions, who's ever been in a courtroom? Um, Courtrooms are intimidating, are they not? They're very intimidating, even even if you're there for good reasons, uh, they're intimidating. In fact, I remember when when we were finalizing uh, Ellie's adoption, I can remember walking into the courtroom both excited uh, and also quite nervous, Uh, And I was nervous because the judge holds all power with respect to the decision that they make. And so we walk in in that particular morning, and it was this very kind, very gentle uh, older man uh, that was overseeing that particular hearing, and yet it was not lost on me. This guy entirely controlled the outcome of what was going to happen on that day. See, the intimidation is in the fact that the judge, when the judge renders their decision, that decision is legally binding, it is enduring, and it is authoritative. And I say that because that's exactly what we're going to see in the text here this morning. Uh, Genesis 18 and 19 is going to examine God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God will sit uh, on the bench as judge and will render and execute His judgment. And so, what God's word is going to lead us to is this idea right here that God graciously warns and intervenes before executing his righteous judgment. Let me say that again that God graciously warns and intervenes before executing his righteous judgment. And so, with all that's in front of us, we would do well uh, right now to stop to pause, to pray, to submit ourselves to the Lord uh, and all that God has for us here uh, this morning. So why don't you join me as we go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this day. And uh, God, we thank you for your word, even this word that uh, in many ways will be piercing Um, God, it will be uncomfortable. Uh, It will be challenging in a variety of ways. And yet, God, we're thankful for your Word. God, we're praying that your Word uh, would do your work, that we would be yielded and submitted uh, to your Spirit in all that you have for us uh, here this morning. Uh, Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. This morning, God, we're praying for Church of the Redeemer and for Pastor Robert Browning. God, we pray uh, that you'd be working in that body of believers uh, in the same way that we desire that you'd be working and moving within uh, each of us. And so, Lord, would you have your way? Uh, God, would you accomplish your good purposes in a manner, and a way that only you can, uh, in and now through your word, we pray this in your name. And all God's people said. Amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is God's righteous and gracious judgment. God's righteous and gracious judgment. And again, this idea that God graciously warns and intervenes before executing his righteous judgment. And so you probably already picked up on this tension, this duality of both the grace of God and the righteousness of God. Uh, and, And that's intentional because as we move throughout, I want us to be able to see in this text both the grace of God in his intervention and his warning, but also the justice and righteousness of God as he executes his judgment. So with that, let's get into the text, starting here in 1822, uh, and uh, what we see initially here is Abraham's intercession, Abraham's intercession. Intercession is another word for prayer. Uh, So look at your Bibles. Here's what it says. I'm going to read a portion of this uh, to get us started. It says this. So the men, right, this is the two angels that accompanied the Lord uh, in the first part of chapter 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Now listen to this next line. This really is uh, the, the, the epicenter of all that we're going to see in, in the text this morning. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the passage, but essentially what Abraham does is he continues to bargain or, 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 or wager with God and basically gets all the way down to 10. God, if there's 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? To which God says, yes, I'll spare the city. Uh, And then the Lord and Abraham depart from there. Now now this is Abraham's intercession. All of this is prompted by what we saw at the end of last week in verses 16 to 21 when God revealed his plan that he was going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham, in response, begins to intercede uh, on behalf of the city. Now part of what's really surprising about this is that he's interceding uh, for a city full of wicked foreigners. This is a unique and distinct um, aspect that we don't often find in the Scriptures. Now, it's plausible that he has Lot in mind. He's thinking about his troubled nephew living in that city uh, and, and concern for his well-being, and so he makes this appeal. And, and the entirety of Abraham's appeal is this. This is an appeal to God's justice and mercy, He's appealing really on both sides, if you will, with respect to this. Um, and, and, and really, verse 25 captures the whole of what Abraham's wrestling with. Let me, let me read this line again. He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so here's what Abraham go, has going on in his mind. He's saying, well, you know, God, if you really are just, if the city is destroyed, and those who are righteous within the city are destroyed with it, then God's mercy is in question. But, but if the city is spared uh, and all the guilty within that city escape the just punishment that they deserve, then God's justice is in question. And so from Abraham's perspective, God, God's got a real dilemma here. He's got a real problem if there's anyone righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the entirety of Abraham's prayer is is resting on this premise that God is righteous in his being and just in his action. And of course, I, I think at some point Abraham realizes, you know, I've been to Sodom, 50 righteous people, that's kind of a generous ask, right? And so he starts whittling it down until you get all the way to 10, and the truth is, God would spare the city for one. We'll actually see God spare another city for one in chapter nineteen. But it's this bold comical move um, that 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 puts forth this question How is it that God can simultaneously preserve both his justice and his mercy? How can the innocent be spared, and how can the guilty be punished? And loved ones, that that question is only resolved, it's only remedied in one way, and it's remedied in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only place where this is going to be explained. This is the only place where this is going to be resolved. It's been well said that the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where God's justice and His mercy kiss. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right. We're told in first Corinthians one that we become the righteousness of God. So listen, listen. Here's how God resolves this. It's in the cross. Jesus dies in your place and in my place. And his death, right. His death, that is the punishment for the wicked right, the wrath that you and I deserve in our rebellion against God is paid for by Jesus. And then in faith, when we trust in Jesus, the righteousness that belongs to him and to him alone is now imputed or granted or placed upon you and I. And so that's how the innocent are spared, right? Sin is punished in Jesus, and the innocent, those who believe in Jesus, are now spared from God's destruction. And part of what's fascinating is in all of this, Abraham, probably unknowingly to him, is directing us towards the saving work of Christ. Right? Because right, we wrestle with this question, how do you do this? Well, it's going to be accomplished in Jesus? Right? As Abraham says, God, how will you both be merciful and just? It's almost as if God is saying, here's Jesus, here's how. Which is awesome. And it is the basis of our salvation. One other note that I think is worth making here with respect to Abraham's intercession and another way in which he directs us towards Jesus is how Abraham is a foreshadow of a future intercessor. Abraham here is prefiguring what I think is one of the most glorious realities uh, for you and I as believers, and it's this, that Jesus intercedes, that Jesus is praying for you and I. In fact, he's doing that right now. Did you know that? Jesus is praying for you and I right now. He's praying for me to preach better, and he's praying for you to listen better. I don't know if that's what he's actually praying, but he could pray those things. But he is definitely praying for us right now. Let me prove this biblically. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, here's what Jesus prayed. He said, I do not ask only for these, he's talking about the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's talking about you. In Romans 8, it says Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, interceding for us. He's doing it right now. Hebrews 7, he, Jesus, is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Loved ones, your Savior and my Savior is praying for you and I right now. And, and he, here's, here's what this means, right? Here's, here's some of the implications of this. Uh, I, I'm actually gonna steal a quote here from a, a, an old Scottish minister, a guy named Robert Murray McShane. Here, here's what he says about the ministry of Jesus' intercession on, on our behalf. He said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. He's like, man, if I could hear Jesus praying for me, I, I'd take on the world. And he goes on and he says this. He says, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Now, now, I, I don't know about you, but how encouraged do you get when someone else tells you, hey, I'm praying for you? That's, it's, it, I like, n- at no time in my life have I been like, that's discouraging. Right? That's always encouraging. And yet, and yet, it gets way better because God's saying, Jesus is praying for you. You hear that and you're like, let's go. Right? We can walk in confidence knowing that Christ is praying for us. And so, loved one, listen, listen. What, what's, what's that thing? What's that situation? What's that circumstance? What's that difficulty? And you're like, what is that thing? And here's what you have to know. Christ is praying for you in that right now. And so, loved one, walk in confidence, knowing that Jesus is praying for you. Abraham's intercession. What a beautiful reality that unfolds here, which leads us uh, really into the the, the, the root or, or, or the, the, the epicenter of the story that's in front of us because the focus shifts here from uh, the Lord and Abraham on the hill and takes us down into the valley into uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding communities. And here's what we see starting in, verse, or in chapter 19. Uh, this is God's rescuing intervention. God's rescuing intervention. And as we move through this, again, let me just remind you, we want to see both God's grace and how God is warning and and intervening as well as God's justice, right, how he is punishing the wicked and they are getting what they deserve. So look at your Bibles. Uh, Let's just begin to set the stage. 19.1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So the angels arrive, and they are met as they come into the city by Lot himself. Now this phrase, Lot was sitting in the gate, that that, that has some implication to it. Uh, Lot's place indicates a few things. It indicates his assimilation into the city, the influence that he now has in the city, uh, and his participation with the city. Uh, In short, Lot is now full tilt. He's all in on what's going on in the city of Sodom, and we'll get to some of those implications a little bit later. Uh, But notice the story begins innocuously enough uh, with what we see in verses 1 through 3, and it's the hospitality of Lot. So look at what he says. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. Lot's like, No, man, I know what goes on in the city. You, you don't want to stay here. So they turned aside to him and entered his, in, entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. And so similar to what we saw with Abraham last week, in chapter 18, he welcomes his guests, he invites them into uh, his home, uh, though he does have to kind of strong arm and coerce them uh, to get them to come in, they do uh, come in. Now let me also just make this note here, Uh, don't let the unfolding events delude you into any way, uh, into thinking that that the angels needed Lot to rescue them, no, Lot needs the angels to rescue himself, the angels were there to destroy the city, Uh, they would be just fine whether or not they were invited in. Uh, but what we do see is this hospitality of lot. And as you think about that, let me just remind you last week, right, we, I, I, there was this hospitality challenge uh, that we gave to you all as a church. And the challenge was this, that between now and Easter that you would invite a non-believing person in your life uh, to church and you would invite them into your home. Uh, we think probably the easiest way to do that is to combine both, invite them to join you on Easter and then also into uh, your home. So you have four weeks, right? You got four weeks uh, to, to, to make a run at this challenge. A lot here is demonstrating hospitality as should we. Uh, but the story really begins to pick up starting in verse four. <clears throat> and uh, here's what we see uh, in verses 4 through 11, a lot of it is just wildly disturbing. Um, and so we've captured it under this heading here, the sin of the people. It's the sin of the people. And, and as disturbing as this is, it's actually really insightful for us as well. Right? As we look at the sin of the people, uh, let's notice uh, what we see, some characteristics uh, that are revealed about sin. Here's the first thing. Look at verse 4. It says, But before they lay down, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So just make note of this, sin is comprehensive in nature. It's comprehensive in nature. It's the young and the old, it's all the men, right? all the people to the last man. Here's the point, that everyone, everyone is subjected to sin because everyone, or, or let me say it this way, no one is immune to sin. It's comprehensive in nature. The entire city is infected by sin, which, by the way, is true of us. Right? Paul tells us in Romans 3 with unflinching clarity that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he spends 10 verses telling us all the ways that we have sinned uh, to drive home that point, right? That sin is comprehensive in nature without exception. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only that, but sin also comprehensively corrupts that we're all subjected to, to the corrosive uh, corruption uh, of sin. And that's going to be really important to keep in mind as we make our way through this text. Because there, there, there's this uh, implicit danger that lurks right underneath the surface, uh, particularly in a passage like this. And, and, and the danger is this, loved ones. It's that as we read this passage, there is going to be a temptation from each of us to look at the people in the text and go, Oh, they're, they're worse than me. And at some level, they're terrible, okay? Um, but, but we look at them and we're like, oh, they're so bad. And then to look at ourselves, and go, you know, my, my sin's not that bad. Okay, listen very carefully to me. You and I are corrupted by the same thing that the characters in this text are corrupted by. The same sin that infects them is the same sin that infects us. That our defiance and our rebellion puts us in the same posture and same place of our need for Christ that they have as well. We too are guilty, right? We we, we just just established that. And so we too need the rescue of Jesus. So we see that sin is comprehensive in nature. Notice, starting in verse 5, that sin distorts God's good design. Look at what it says. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. That word know, that's a sexual term. Um, they they want to have sex with these guys. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And you're like, oh, good for Lot, except he does something really stupid too. Look at what he says in verse eight. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Right? They have, uh, they're virgins. Let me bring them out to you And do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What is happening? This is so twisted, so perverse, so sordid, loved ones. This is what sin does. It distorts. Right? You see the distortion of God's good design and the confines of proper sexual expression reserved for marriage, you see the disregard for the value and the dignity of image bearers. I mean, Lot is making his daughters a commodity to be offered and, and appease this mob. You've got the attempted exploitation of others to satisfy the sexual desires of these uh, individuals. You, you see people being objectified. This is this is all a distortion. It's a wildly disturbing scene, is it not? You've got sexual perversion in a multitude. Of forms. You have homosexuality, you have attempted rape, you have orgy, um, you've got the mob doing their part, you got Lot offering his daughters like unpaid prostitutes. What is happening? Okay, let me ask you this question. If I asked you, is Lot righteous? Right? Because that's the whole thing, right? God's not gonna sweep the city away if there's any righteous. Is Lot righteous? What would you say? Anybody want to go, he's definitely righteous? Anyone in on that? Okay. Here's what you have to know. Here's what you have to know. The New Testament in 2 Peter 2, in 2 Peter 2, it tells us that Lot's righteous. In fact, it tells us three times. Three times. And and you're like, how? Well, here, let me just read it. Let me read it. Here's what Peter says. Uh, In fact, you might want to mark 2 Peter 2. We're going to reference it a few times. Uh, through, through the remainder of our time together. I'm going to read verse 7 and 8. Uh, but, but really from verse 6 to verse 9 would all be uh, appropriate. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Right? Three times righteous lot. Now, I don't know about you, I read Second Peter and I'm like, Peter, did you read Genesis? Do you not know what's going on? Like, how can you say that? And yet, as we think about Lot, I think Lot, in so many ways, listen, listen, in so many ways, Lot captures the reality of what is true for so many of us in our spiritual lives. And you might be like, how dare you? No, no, okay, let, let me explain. Love one, how is it that Lot is righteous? How could that possibly be? How could the New Testament possibly tell us this man is righteous? Well, let me ask you another question. How could you possibly be righteous? How is it that you could possibly be righteous? Because here's what I know. It's not because of your conduct. I know I'm not righteous because of my conduct. See, you are saved the same way that Lot is saved, not because of your own righteous conduct, but because the blood of Jesus was shed on your behalf, and instead of having to account for your wickedness, you have the righteousness of Christ that is now placed upon you. Right? Our sin is comprehensive. We know that. We're saved by faith in Christ and in Him alone, and in that, we receive the righteousness of Jesus. Here's the issue for Lot. And I think really, if we're just being honest, this is the issue for all of us at some level. Here's the issue Not only had Lot gotten into Sodom, but Sodom had gotten into Lot. And so here's the conflict, right? Here's what plays out in all of our lives at some level. Because we're all flawed, we're all marred, we're all gripped by sin, we do this thing where we will vacillate, right, back and forth. In one sense, I can be appalled um, and, and, and offended and repulsed by the world. And then I vacillate back over to the other side where I'm enticed and I'm attracted and I'm allured to the world. Is it's true for all of us. In fact, that pendulum can swing in a matter of moments. Can it not? And so Lot, as 2 Peter tells us, he's simultaneously tormented and enticed. We know that he's righteous because of his faith, not because of his conduct. And yet he acts so wickedly. And I think we look at all of this, we've got to ask some questions of ourselves. Just ask yourself this, am I? Am I enticed? by the world am i tormented about sin am i grieved by the godlessness that i see in the world and then right here here's the pressing matter am i equally grieved by the godlessness that i see in myself am i galled by the evil around us or do i find myself tolerating callous maybe even allowing it see if We're going to be honest. What we realize is that we too struggle to vacillate back and forth where I'm repulsed by the world but also allured and gripped by the world. All of this here, this is a distortion of God's good design. It's also a reminder of our sin and a beautiful reminder that we are made righteous solely through the blood of Jesus. God's good design is distorted, and yet in, in what is arguably some of the most wicked, hideous, sordid verses in all the Bible, you see the grace of God radiating out of it. Sin distorts God's good design. And then notice the response of the mob. Look at verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew Jr. to break the door down. Like, things just turned on a dime for Lot. See, here's what's going on. Sinners accuse and attack when rebuffed. The, the, the mob rejects Lot's offer. They're not interested in his daughters. And then they set out to pounce upon him. They didn't get what they wanted, so they attacked. Now, loved ones, listen, listen, listen. This right here, this is, this is a perfect example of, of the folly of attempting to appease the world. Because the world will only love you when you give the world what, what, what it wants. And the moment you won't give the world what it wants, the world will hate you. So there's no point in trying to appease the world, right? Because the moment you push back, they're going to attack. And so God help us, right? God help us to be people who will hold fast, that will be faithful to the Lord. Seeking approval from the world is a fool's errand, and it is a compromising endeavor. Let us have nothing to do with it. And so then finally what we see in verse 10 and 11 is that sin is restrained by the Lord. Look at what it says, starting in verse 10. It says, But the men reached out, right? The two angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. See, they're being rescued. They're intervening on behalf of God for Lot's sake. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Right? Lot is rescued because evil is restrained. And as you, you think about this, here, just make note of this. There, there is rampant uh, evil and wickedness in the world all around us. And yet, listen to me, listen to me. You and I are largely ignorant of all of the evil and all of the wickedness that exists because God restrains said evil. So for as bad as you think the world is, it could actually be significantly worse. And the reason that it's not worse is because God restrains evil. And so praise God, right? Praise God that sin is restrained in our world, and that you and I really have no idea how bad it really could be. This is the sin of the people, which maybe if I'm just being a little more direct, this is the sin of you and I, because it's, it's you and I. This is also us. And so notice now, starting in verse 12, where God warns, right, we see God's warning of judgment. And again, there's grace. There is grace in this warning. God could have just started raining fire and sulfur right there in that moment, but there's grace in this warning. And so look at what it says. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. This is shocking. Look, Look at what it says next. But he lingered. What is wrong with this guy? So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out of the city and set him outside the city. They're literally dragging him out. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now you think, you think they'd be moving like Usain Bolt style uh, up into the hills at that point, and yet they don't. Look at, look at what Lot does. This guy is clueless. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. So he understands, I've been spared, he starts bargaining, I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, th- this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And then stunningly, the, the angels acquiesced to this request. Verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I'll grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. This is God's warning of judgment. And the focus here pivots now to Lot and his family and their preservation. Uh, Lot is now made aware of the coming judgment that we as the readers have known about since the middle of chapter 18. Uh, by the way, the people have proven themselves worthy of judgment uh, that is about uh, to come upon them. And yet again, this, this is a remarkable grace. Notice how we see God's grace, first of all, and that God's judgment is announced. Right? The angels come, they, they announce this judgment. It's gracious of God to issue a warning before executing his judgment. Uh, Last fall, we worked our way through the entire book of Jeremiah, where for 40 years, God warned wicked Judah about the coming judgment. And they ignored it, and so they they, they succumbed to it. The entire Bible is a warning of God's coming judgment. See, no one, no one's going to stand before God and say, you know, you didn't say anything about this. No, God has warned us repeatedly. Like the issue for some is what we see in the sons-in-law. God's judgment is announced, but also make note of this, that God's judgment is ignored. Right, with lots son-in-laws, they, they, they just ignore the warning. And ignoring the warning costs them their life. And the same is true for any of us. Love one, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you ignore God's warning it will cost you your life. Let let me read here from the book of Jude. I don't know if you've spent much time in the book of Jude. Jude's a fascinating book, also some odd things in the book of Jude. Uh, But Jude's really clear about this point that we're making right here. So let me read here. I'm going to start in Jude uh, verse 5. There's there's no chapter breaks in the book of Jude. It's a short book. So I'm going to start in verse 5. It says this, now I want you to remind you Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. God's not afraid of destroying his own people. If you don't believe, you're going to face judgment. Verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Angelic beings, right? You don't get a free pass. If you're going to defy God, if you're going to ignore what he's saying, you're going to fall under his judgment. Now look at verse seven in Jude Right, this is, has to do with our text. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, here it is, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude is telling us this is a warning, which you see in Genesis 19, that's a warning for you to know that if you reject what God's saying, you're going to suffer his wrath. The second Peter text that, 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 that I told you to, to mark, he says in that text, right, that God's going to turn Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and he's going to make them an example of what happens to the ungodly. And I say that because if any of you, if any of you are sitting in this room and you're not a believer you have not yielded your life to Christ, you have not surrendered your life to Christ, you have not trusted in Him, and Him alone, in faith, then here's what you have to understand. You've got to hear this warning. This is the most significant, substantial warning that you will ever hear, and I pray that you would hear it because God is warning you. He is announcing a word to you that you desperately need to hear because if you ignore God's warning, it is going to cost you your life. And even in this text that we're looking at in Genesis 19, Right, God is issuing a warning, but God is not going to warn in perpetuity. A, a moment is going to come where the warning ceases and the judgment is then executed. Right? for 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 Sodom, the day of death is upon them. The day of death is upon all who reject and fail to believe in God's word. Now, for those of you who are believers, it's a great reminder of what you and I are mercifully spared from, is it not? Right, praise God, you and I are not consumed in wrath that we deserve but instead clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we see God's judgment is announced, it's ignored. And then, starting in verse 15, we see God's intervening mercy takes over and rescues us. And so the angels are telling Lot, get out! And he lingers. Why? Like, why does he linger? Has he become desensitized to the sin of Sodom? Is he reluctant to leave this life behind? We we don't fully know, but, but he lingers and so the Lord, right, the, the, through the angels, graciously, they grab him by the hand, and they're dragging him out of the city. And, and the text even says, right, look at what it says, the Lord being merciful to him, God proactively acts to spare Lot and his family from sure destruction. I mean, the image is striking, is it? Now you see the angels grabbing his hand and like dragging him along. It's like a parent who's got a young child who's reluctant. You ever had this experience, right? You're kind of dragging your child into something. It's like that. The picture of what God does for us. He grabs us and drags us from judgment to safety. And then in spite of all of this, right? They're out of the city Lot's commanded, go to the hills, and he's like, I, I can't. And as, essentially, he says, let me go to Zoar. Like, why, why Zoar? Why, why, why this little town? Now, we don't know for sure, but here, here's what's most likely of the case. What's most likely is that Zoar is a mini version of Sodom. And so this is likely insight into the fact that Lot just can't let go of Sodom. The trappings and allure of Sodom still hold him, still grip him, which really makes God's rescue and favor even more profound. Because don't miss what God's doing in this moment, right? In spite of his lingering, in spite of Lot's conflicted allegiance, he's shown favor. God rescues Lot. He grants Lot his request in spite of his very questionable conduct. And this is both the mercy, right, the sparing of God, as well as the grace, the gift of God uh, that's extended to Lot, And I don't know about you, you read this and you're like, that guy doesn't deserve this. Right. He doesn't. Just like you and I don't deserve the grace and the mercy of God either. See, we don't deserve clemency. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't don't deserve that from God, yet they're ours in Christ. And we, we don't deserve the grace and the kindness and the compassion of God. But they're ours in Christ. And so just ask yourself, where are the places that God has intervened in your life and shown mercy? Where are the places that God has rescued you? And as you think about those places, what have, has been your response to God's intervention? Has it been a response to gratitude? Has it been a response to worship? Or if you're just being honest, is there this sense of entitlement? Well, God owes me that. I, I deserve that. No, like Lot, we deserve none of that. And yet we're graced by God in His kindness. And so God's warning of judgment gives way to God's execution of judgment, starting in verse 23. We see God's judgment on the wicked. It says this, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground but Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is God's justice. The warning's over. The warning's over. Judgment's being executed. The Lord is raining fire and sulfur sulfur down on Sodom, which uh, I think at this point, it's safe to assume God did not find 10 righteous people in the city, right? Um, And yet, here's what's fascinating, is God spares Zoar for the sake of one very questionably righteous individual. So the issue is not God's mercy. The issue is the wickedness of humanity. And so God's judgment comes In fact, make note of a few things here with respect to God's judgment. First of all, that God is the active agent in judgment. Four different times in verse 24 and 25 we're reminded that God is the one who's doing this. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities. God is the one who's doing this. God God is the one who judges because God has the right. God has the prerogative. God has the authority to judge. Right. Uh, The sin of Sodom... Are, are all aspects of defiance against God. So God judges. Now, now, think about, like, for you and I, if someone commits a crime against you, like, you're assaulted. You're going to get your day in court. But you're not the judge. Right? You, you don't get to go up to the bench and start banging the gavel. Right? You get your day, but you're not the judge. God sits on the bench because He is the judge. Why he's the active agent. He's the one that's doing this. He has the authority and the position and the prerogative to render judgment on sinful humanity. And so he does. But notice also this when we look at Lot's wife, just make note of this: there are no exceptions for defying God's command. No exceptions. Right? So, so Lot's wife struggles to leave Sodom, uh, defies God. Right? In verse 17, they were warned: don't look back. And she looked back, and she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, we got to talk about this for a moment, because I think in most of our minds, we envision this scenario where they're all heading to the hills, and she kind of glances back over, like, frozen. Pillar of salt, and she dies. I'm not going to say that that couldn't be the case, although that's highly unlikely. Here's what's far more likely that's happening here, is that she lingered, and she found herself conflicted. Tore between the two. Now, Lot and his daughters, right, they're on their way. And as she lingered, she subjected herself to the fire and sulfur that rained down upon her, eventually overcoming her. Uh, And as she was consumed, she was salted. Either way, don't miss this, the defiance of the command led to her destruction. You hear that? The defiance of of the command led to her destruction. And so, loved one, hear me very carefully when I say this. There are no exceptions. When we defy God's word, we're subjected to God's wrath. When we defy God's word, we're subjected to God's wrath. And yet, as the scene shifts from the valley to the hillside, there is this beautiful portrait of God's grace and God's promise seen in Abraham. Right? We see here that God remembers his promise and his people. Abraham stands there surveying the destruction that is befalling the city. Uh, We don't know what he knows. Maybe he's wondering about Lot. Maybe he knows Lot has been spared. We don't know. And yet as he stands there, it's hard to not think about uh, the, the, the question that he posed back in 1825. Will the judge of the earth do what is just? And the answer unequivocally is yes. On both sides. As the judgment rains down, Right, the fire and sulfur consumes the wicked. Look what it says in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent, out, sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which, God, in which Lot had lived. See, that phrase, God remembers, what that phrase, you see that different places in the Bible. And that, what it really means is God is going to do exactly what he promised that he was going to do. God remembered Noah in Genesis 8. God remembers Abraham here in Genesis 19. God's going to remember Rachel in Genesis 30. She's going to get pregnant. God's going to remember Israel in Exodus 2, and he's going to take them out. It's not that God forgot. It's an indication that, no, I know my promises. I know my people, and I'm going to act on their behalf. Will the righteous judge, right? Will the righteous judge, the judge of the earth, do what is just? Yes, on both sides sides. And so, loved one, you can know that God remembers his promises and his people. God will do what he has promised. Which leads here to the conclusion of this account, also the conclusion of what we see of Lot in the book of Genesis, and unfortunately, we have another (laughs) disturbing account uh, in front of us. Um, let, Let me read it, and we'll make a couple of comments with respect to it and be done. Here's what it says. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Did you catch that? No, I can't go to the hills. Let me live here. And as soon as he gets to go to the hills, he's like, uh, I'll go to Zoar. Never mind, I'm going to the hills. This guy can't make up his mind. Look at what it says next. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we'll lie with him so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Uh, Verses 34 and 35 detail how the younger daughter did the same thing the next night. Let me pick it up in verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. You're like, man, just when I thought this story couldn't get any creepier, they did it. Like, they managed to pull it off. The firstborn bore uh, bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This here is a warning of loving the world over loving God. This is a warning of loving the world over loving God. It's the culmination of the life of a man who has continually and increasingly chosen the world over the Lord and loved ones, it serves as a striking warning uh, to you and to I. And so I, I want you to consider Lot's progression through the book of Genesis. In chapter 13, he moved near to the city of Sodom. In chapter 14, he moved into the city of Sodom. What we saw at the beginning of chapter 19 is he's now sitting in the gate. Right, He would fully given himself over to the city of Sodom. Right, He had chosen this. And what it culminates in, look at verse 30. He lived in a cave. He's living in this dark isolation. He lives in a cave. You know what caves are often used for? Tombs. They were used as tombs. And and I think the imagery is intentional here in this depiction. That Lot lived his remaining days, not in the joy of the Lord, not in going back to Uncle Abe and all the promises of God, but he is living in this degenerated, death-like state. Even though he has been spared, even though he was given a clean slate, even though he got a restart, he wasted it with incest and with drunkenness. Now, now the incest should know this, right? You're like, well, did they do that in Sodom? No, they didn't even do that in Sodom. Incest was unilaterally rejected and abhorred in the ancient Near East. Lot's daughters would have known that this was evil. But like their dad, the spirit of Sodom had also pervaded their souls as well. And, and so, so don't miss how this whole thing comes full circle. Right? Lot, Lot, who offered his daughters to this lust-filled mob is now sexually exploited by said daughters. And here's the irony. Here's the irony in all of this. Lot becomes the very one who carries out the disgraceful act that he first suggested. It's come full circle. And the result are these two children uh, that will give way to nations uh, that are going to be at odds with Israel over the coming centuries. You're like, sheesh. What a conclusion. Let me have us just consider Lot's life and the warning that it issues to us. Now we know, right, we know that Lot belonged to the Lord because of his faith. Second Peter tells us that. Um, and yet it's really hard, it's really, really hard to look at Lot and to not see a man who in so many ways wasted his life. And Lot's, Lot's life really is a warning to us to not waste your life. Lot, Lot had given himself over to Sodom. Right, he lingered because he refused to release Sodom. He, he was allured and enticed by Sodom. It, it gripped him. It, it grabbed him. And I wonder if the very things that gripped and grabbed Lot don't also have their hooks in you and I. I. I wonder if we too struggle to live this divided life. right? Well, yes, I belong to the Lord, but my heart is ever enticed, ever grabbed, ever gripped by the world. So I'm just going to ask some questions as we close, and I'm going to let you process these between yourself and the Spirit. Here we go. I got six. Number one, is there any area in my life I'm delaying or deferring obedience to the Lord? Is there any area in my life where I'm delaying or deferring obedience to the Lord? Right? In the same way that lot lingered, are you lingering in obedience to what God is calling you to? Number two, is there any aspect of my life I am tolerating, rationalizing or accepting sin? Is there any area in my life where I'm tolerating, where I'm rationalizing, where I'm accepting sin? You've you become accustomed to sin. You become comfortable with sin. You cherish sin. Right? You're all in on the world the same way that Lot is all in on Sodom. Number 3. Am I prone to love things more than I love the Lord? Am I prone to love things more than I love the Lord? Do I love the gifts of God more than the person of God? Have the things of this world, has materialism gripped me in an ungodly way? Number four, do my entertainment choices reflect a love for the world or for the Lord? Do my entertainment choices reflect a love for the world or for the Lord? Let me ask it this way. The things that you watch, the things that you read, the things that you listen to, would you still partake of them if Jesus was sitting next to you? And if not, what does that reveal about your heart? Number five, is my money invested in temporal or eternal pursuits? See, Jesus taught us that money was diagnostic of our heart, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you look at your financial statements and records, who do you love? Number six, do I invest my time and energy into others or into myself? Who or what? gets the best of you. In many ways, Lot wasted his life. Love one, don't waste your life. Let your life be lived in the fullness of being yielded to King Jesus in all things. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, God, for the sharpness of your word, uh, the directness of your word, God, the way that your word will cut it straight, in the ways that we needed to cut it straight. So Father, we thank you for the ways that you have reminded us of our desperate need of you. God reminded us of our sin and yet you have reminded us of the profound grace that is ours in Christ and the righteousness that we now possess, not because of anything that we've done, solely because of the atoning blood of Jesus in our place. God, would you help us to live in the fullness of that, yielded to you in all things. We pray this in your name. Amen.